So we've been working our way through, sort of unintentionally, uh, this wasn't a plan, but we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke a little bit, and uh, we pick up just about where we left off last week. This is Luke chapter 5, beginning at the first verse. We looked at Luke 4 as a hometown hero and a hometown heretic, and now Luke has gone from uh, Nazareth and Sephorus, has made his way sort of down through a valley to Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we pick up this morning. So this is Luke uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen then for the voice of God. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people, or you will catch people. The the word can be translated either way. From now on, you will fish, or you will catch people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. In the early 1940s, Lou Smeads left a job in Detroit in a Detroit steel factory, hitchhiked to Muskegon, took a Greyhound bus to Chicago, and enrolled in Moody Bible Institute. During his tenure at Moody, Lou Smeads learned the rules. No dating during the first semester. Suit coats and ties in classroom and cafeteria. And weekly reports about time spent in prayer, how many gospel tracts he'd given away, and how many souls he'd saved. And so wanting to be be successful, he tried to keep the rules. But then he writes this. This is Lewis Smeads. The reputation that most students prized was that they had a passion for souls or were 
on fire for the Lord. I did not develop a passion for souls and had not caught on fire. And my failure disturbed me considerably. How could I not have a passion for souls when people walking down the street at that very moment might perish forever in hell because I failed to witness to them about Jesus? Their damnation would be on my head forever. And so alone in my dormitory room at night, I would ask myself, why sit here idle when I could be out on the street witnessing to sinners who might die and go to hell if I do not give them another chance to accept Christ? That's a snapshot of a bygone era, a particular theological tradition, and a soul struggling with the call to be fishers of men. And while it may seem quaint, I remember wondering the same. I remember wondering if eternity hangs in the balance for my neighbor. And I love my neighbor. Then shouldn't I do everything I can to catch my neighbor with the good news about Jesus? If I love people and they need a relationship with Jesus in order to be saved, how can I rest until they know Jesus? Shouldn't I do something more to hook them for Jesus? If you, were, if you were formed by an evangelical Christian tradition, our text plays an oversized role in understanding your call in this world. We're all fishers called to follow Jesus, to be fishers of men and women. And there's a measure of guilt if you're not a good fisherman or you can't muster up the courage to cast a line, or you're not, you're not on fire for, you're all smoke, you're no fire. But maybe there's another way to understand this iconic and enigmatic text. Maybe there's another way to faithfully follow Jesus in fishing. Consider. In the cool of the morning, while fishermen were putting away their gear after a long, futile night, Jesus is teaching on a crowded beach. Realizing he needs a better pulpit, he asks Simon to let him speak from his boat. So the Sea of Galilee is something of a long, oblong bowl. The shores gently slope up and away. The acoustics would be better for the speaker if he were on the water and the listeners on the slope. So this is clearly an early compromise with technology for the sake of communication. 
beginning the long, slow slide down the slippery slope to screens <laughs> and PowerPoint preaching and live stream church. I'm looking at you. The Sea of Galilee is fed primarily by springs on the north end, flowing to the Jordan River on the south end. A boat set in the water would drift down the lake. Therefore, either Simon anchored the boat, or with the skill of a professional oarsman, he kept the boat in place in front of the crowd. So it seems entirely plausible that after Jesus wrapped up his sermon, he turned to Simon to tip him, put out in the deep water, and let down the nets for a catch. Now, inflection is lost in translation, and the word translated here as master can just as easily be translated as boss, teacher, or someone over you in the military. So maybe Simon, exhausted, and as one who tended to lead with his gut, maybe he said sarcastically, yeah, sure enough, boss man. Let's, let's go back out in the deep water. We, we were out all night. We didn't catch a thing. We cleaned the nets and put them away. We're dog dead tired, and you're a rabbi from the hinterlands. But yeah, we do this every day. But yeah, whatever you say, boss. And yet they go back out. Jesus had recently healed Simon's mother-in-law of a high fever. And maybe he wasn't nearly as sarcastic as I've imagined. So our translation puts little titles over sections of Scripture. This section is labeled, Jesus Calls His First Disciples. But there's actually no calling. Jesus in this passage, doesn't invite them to follow him to fish for people. He announces. He proclaims. He says to them, more literally, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. And with that, they leave everything on the beach and follow him. That's the way it's told. However, it seems unlikely to me that they left boatloads of freshly caught fish to rot in the midday sun. But you get the point. Jesus doesn't pitch a tent and begin an evangelical crusade. He doesn't talk about souls and salvation. He doesn't preach hell and damnation, even a fuzzy hell. 
Instead, he catches people in a net of love and mercy. This text is the front end of a long section of healings. From here, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, a paralytic, and the centurion's sick son, sick servant. He, he heals the widow's son from the dead. He raises the widow's son from the dead, and he heals a demon-possessed man. In and among these stories are sermons about loving your enemies, not judging others, turning the other cheek. Tucked into these stories are images of a kingdom where the poor and those who weep are called blessed. Jesus had just announced the coming of his kingdom to his hometown friends and neighbors. And now he casts a net that catches the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. He casts a net that sets people free from whatever enslaves them. He casts the net that gives people the love, strength, faith, freedom that they need to be more fully alive, more fully human, more fully who they were created to be. And then Jesus proclaims to these fishermen that they will join him in casting those nets. He doesn't go to the preachers or the teachers. He doesn't invite the well-educated or the well-healed. He tells these common fishermen that there are bigger fish to fry and they follow him out into deeper waters. Remember loose meads? Loose meads was burdened by a particular way of reading this text and understanding this mandate for mission. But he writes that a light dawned on him after his days at Moody. In his words, a passion for souls, any souls in particular? No, just souls in general. I couldn't help it. I didn't have that passion. I have, however, over the years, developed a passion for people. Not just people in general, but persons in particular, and not just for their souls. I have an honest-to-goodness passion for certain children in Los Angeles, innocent as newborn kittens, knocked around, forgotten, abandoned by their parents, and plunked into the Los Angeles Child Welfare Department, which may not be the ultimate but certainly is still a very real hell. I have a passion for people of my age, without memory, without hope, stuck like living corpses in dysfunctional nursing homes. I 
have a passion for persons I know who need to be saved from their sins so that they can go to heaven, but for now need to be saved from AIDS and saved from hunger and hopelessness. Dear friends, this is not to dilute the call to fish for people or diminish the demand that you may know to call others unto Christ. But it strikes me that this text is of one piece with the announcement of the kingdom. Jesus proclaims that the year of the Lord's favor has dawned. And that liberation extends to all people. And then Luke stacks up pictures of what kingdom liberation looks like. And that's not about moving people from one side of the ledger to the other or counting spiritual scalps on a totem pole. It's not about fishing for souls. It's about casting a net of love and mercy that liberates people from whatever it is that enslaves them. To which the building is saying amen. It's not about casting, about fishing for souls. It is about casting a net of love and mercy that liberates people from whatever it is that enslaves them. And that net is of one piece. It's not split between evangelism and social justice. It's not works of mercy for the sake of conversion. It's not a cup of cold water in hopes of capturing a soul. It is simply following the way of Jesus in love and service. For Jesus would liberate all from whatever it is that enslaves. Poverty, consumerism, consumption, competition, addiction, comfort, sin, Cynicism, depression. One last thing. Because you're still with me. A friend was working on this same text. He grew up Mennonite, went to Wheaton, taught at a Reform college, and is currently a Lutheran pastor. That's a full-blown Christian. <laughs> he emailed me 61 years of evangelical eisegesis just exploded in my brain. Eisegesis is reading into the text. Exegesis is reading out of the text. 61 years of evangelical eisegesis just exploded in my brain. And then he added... Then he, then he added, 
There is perhaps no expression more traditionally misunderstood than Jesus' invitation to these workers to become fishers of men. This metaphor, despite the grand old tradition of missionary interpretation, does not refer to the saving of souls as if Jesus were conferring on these men instant evangelist status. Rather, the image is carefully chosen from Jeremiah 16, where it's used as a symbol of God's censure of Israel. And elsewhere, the hooking of fish is a euphemism for judgment upon the rich, Amos 4.2, or, or the powerful, Ezekiel 29.4. Taking this mandate for his own, Jesus is inviting common folk to join him in his struggle to overturn the existing order of power and privilege. Dear friends, on whatever shore you find yourself, Jesus is calling you to catch people with love and mercy. He wills for us to live by the vision and values of the kingdom. And it will take all of us. It will take all of our nets and boats. Do you hear that call? Do you know a passion for people a particular people, a particular person. The nets of love and mercy overflow with bounty. There's more than enough for everybody. Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Amen.